right, Matthew chapter 8, and we are going to pick up at verse 14. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. Okay, Matthew eight fourteen says, When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he came to the other side in the country of Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight, and Lord, we pray that you would Open our eyes, Lord, that we might behold uh, wondrous things, Lord, from your word. Lord, that we might understand and build up our faith. Lord, that you would cause us to walk in the pathways of righteousness. Lord, may we see the power of Christ tonight. Lord, how it is that he is able to, by simply speaking a word, Lord, put away uh, disease, uh, demons, to even calm uh, the, the storms. Lord, things that no mere man can do. Lord, no one in this earth has the power that Christ has. And so, Lord, may we have greater confidence that if we have fled to him for refuge, that we have a refuge, Lord, that is able to withhold and to withstand every trial and temptation in this present life. And Lord, a refuge to pass safely into the life to come. And so, Lord, we pray that you would build our faith up tonight and that we would see the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in Matthew chapter 8, uh, and this chapter is uh, dealing with just uh, various incidents, uh, narratives concerning the person of Christ. And again, as we mentioned last week, these narratives, these historical uh, events that take place are literal historical events. These are real people, real places, real things that happen. Okay, so the Bible's not dealing in myth or legend in any way, shape, or form. It's dealing with uh, historical events that truly took place 
on the earth. Now I say that because there are many false interpreters of the Bible who would say the historicity is of no consequence at all. All that matters is that we learn some spiritual truth, that it teaches us something about God or about ourselves or how we're supposed to live in this present world. Uh, but this is all nonsense, right? How can something good and true come from a lie? Right. If these things didn't happen, but they're recorded to us as having happened, then they're lies, right? Then they're of no benefit at all. And doesn't the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 say that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain? It's completely futile and worthless. So what benefit is it for us to read and believe these things if none of this happened? Right? It's only a value if this did literally actually happen historically, and it did. And that's what we have here. These are eyewitnesses to these events, Matthew being one of the apostles of Christ, his disciples. He himself saw these things, and we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all confirming to us the same events in many different ways, many of them overlapping and telling us these things so that we have confidence and know for certain that this is the word of God, this is Christ, this is who he is, this is what he did, this is what he said, he truly is the son of God, he did die on the cross, and he has been resurrected for our salvation and that we can trust in him. So these things are recording for us, real, historical, actual events, but not just for the sake of history. Though they are historical, it is for the sake of our faith, for building up our faith so that we are complete and equipped for every good work, so that we know what to believe and we know how to live before God. So it's given to us for the sake of doctrine, of teaching, of instruction, of righteousness, of godliness. That's why these things are recorded. So we're not to read it like we would some mere history book or like we might watch some documentary on, uh, you know, on, on a TV station or something where we're learning facts and these things, but it doesn't really impact or have any bearing on our life. All of this is given to inform us in our faith so that we understand the proper teaching concerning Christ and concerning the way of righteousness. So this is what is happening here. There are various narratives and then also teachings mixed in with these that are for the sake of our faith, right? So that we can understand these things. So last week we dealt with the uh, leper and then also the centurion. And now we pick up in verse 14, which is Peter's mother-in-law. It says, when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. Here, they are in Peter's home, right? So this area, this region of, of the uh, world where Jesus spent a lot of his time in the area of Capernaum and Bethsaida, there around the Sea of Galilee, this is where the disciples lived. Many of them were from this region. And here they're in the hometown of Peter, right? Where his mother-in-law is. And she, he's in Peter's home. And the mother-in-law is lying sick in a bed with fever. Now, one thing to point out here, if Peter has a mother-in-law, then it assumes that he has what? He has to have a wife, does he not? Now, he does have a wife in order to have a mother-in-law. No one wants a mother-in-law without a wife, right? The, you know, you get the mother-in-law, but really it's the wife that you want. Now, if he has the mother-in-law, then this necessitates that he had a wife. And this also is confirmed for us in another passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? 
there, the Apostle Paul, in talking about his rights that he has, that he's not taking advantage of for the sake of the church, he is mentioning here that one of the rights that he does have, that he's not exercising, is the right to have a believing wife, right? That there's nothing wrong or sinful about that. And even the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, they all have believing wives, right? So there, another confirmation that the apostles, uh, Cephas, the brothers of our Lord Jesus, they had believing wives, that they had wives. Now, I say this because we talk a lot about Roman Catholics, uh, though many people don't today. We do need to talk about these things. The Pope, who is supposedly the successor of Peter, right? The Pope is, in Roman Catholic theology, he is the successor of Peter. Peter was the first Pope, and then it passes from Peter to a line of Popes until you get to the present day uh, Pope that we have today. Yet the Roman Catholic Church denies the Pope and the priest the right to marry, to take along a believing wife. Not that if they're Roman Catholic they would be believing, but that they could have a wife anyway. Yet here, isn't this a blatant contradiction? Peter, the supposed first Pope, has a wife, but you forbid the Pope today to have a wife or any of the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church to have a wife. So where do they get this doctrine? Where did it come from, if not from the scriptures? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 4 tells us exactly where it came from. 1 Timothy chapter 4. How can the one who claims to be the successor of Peter teach against marriage when Peter himself had a wife? 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So this idea of forbidding marriage comes from deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, not from the Bible, not from the Lord, and it's not in accordance with the tradition of the apostles because the, most of the apostles, according to 1 Corinthians 9.5, had wives, and here Peter even had a wife. So it is wrong and contrary to teach these things. So here, Peter, in his home, his mother-in-law is sick. Verse 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. Jesus has the ability, the power, simply by touching her hand to heal her instantaneously. Immediately, the fever leaves her and then notice that she gets up after that and she waits on him, right? She shows her appreciation and gratefulness to Christ for what he's done for her by doing what she can do for him, by waiting on him, by serving him, by showing hospitality, washing the feet of, uh, washing the, feet of the saints, doing those types of things. Right? This is what godly women of old, this is how they adorn themselves in their righteousness in this type of way. Right? They're in the home serving in this way to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So notice there that she did not write a book 
She didn't go on a speaking tour. She didn't get up on stage with a microphone and go and tell her story to all the world about what Christ had done for her. Instead, she, in the home, in that context, did what she was supposed to do, which is show hospitality and serve the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is how holy women should behave. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Speaking of godly widows... Speaking of godly widows, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, it says, A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. There, notice that her godliness is exemplified, it is seen, in bringing up her children, showing hospitality to strangers, washing the saints' feet, assisting those in distress, and devoting herself to every good work. In these uh, ministries of service, right, that's what she's doing in this way, right? This is what Peter's mother-in-law is doing. She is waiting on him, serving him, right, in order to relieve uh, whatever she can from him, to be a blessing uh, to him. So this is what she did. Also, Acts chapter 9, when it's commending uh, Dorcas and the kind of woman that she was, Acts chapter 9, verse 36, says, Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So here also, Tabitha, her righteousness is seen in deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And then these other widows are showing Peter the things that she was doing, right, for the sake of the saints, right, for the sake of the believers there in that region. This is the way that she was commended as a godly woman, as a godly woman. Now, I say that because many times in the church today, the expectation is put on the women to be out front, to be on the front lines, to be doing something where they get attention, right, where they're doing these types of things. But here we see that godliness with these ladies was, was manifested in their work in the home, in their service, in doing these things behind the scenes in quiet ways in order to assist the ministry of the Word of Christ. 
And in this way, this is what Peter's mother-in-law does. As soon as she's healed, she gets up and she waits on him. But then in verse 16, evening came, they brought him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the sons. Uh, so here they were recorded. There wouldn't be enough books uh, in the whole world to contain them. So you have in some places these short summaries where they're bringing many people to him and he's healing them of all their diseases and casting out all of these demons. So we have a few snippets here and there in the Gospels of what Jesus did, but he did many other things as well that are not even recorded. And we just have these summaries that describe these things. And all of this is to fulfill, he says, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. This from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now, this carrying away of our diseases here, what he's doing physically for this, these people is indicative of what he's doing spiritually for all of his sheep, for all of his people. Because not everyone is possessed by a demon and not everyone has an infirmity like these people have. But all of the sheep of Christ are born with the disease of sin. And he did bear all of our sin and carried all of the disease of sin away for all of us, right? For all of his sheep, right? And so these healings are teaching this truth and this reality. Verse 18, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Here, Jesus is dealing with the cost of discipleship, right? There are many people who make very bold claims, who talk a big talk, who say that, oh, yes, I will follow you wherever you go. I want to be your disciple. I want to be a Christian but they don't really mean it, right? They're half-hearted. They're not a complete heart. They don't follow the Lord, as we saw in Psalm 119 on Sunday, right? With all of my heart, he says, I have sought you. This is the way that we should be, not with a divided heart, not a double-minded man who's unstable in all of his ways. Well, here, these people are making these big boasts and these big claims, so Jesus is himself testing them. He's pushing back against them, to see, do you know what you're really saying? Do you understand, right, what you're saying, what it means to be my disciple? Now, again, most people, no one does this today, right? Who will do this today? Many times if someone says, I'll follow you wherever you go. I want to be a Christian. Everyone is uh, clapping, applauding, saying, oh, this is so wonderful. This is so great. And if you said something like Jesus did, everyone would accuse you of being negative. Why are you such a Debbie Downer? Shouldn't you trust people and assume the best in them? Right? Why do you always have to rain on everyone's parade? But that's what Jesus does because he knows what's in man. Right. He knows what is in man and he knows that men are liars. They say things, but they don't really mean it. And he knows what's in the heart and that's why he tests them. And if someone is a true disciple, these tests are not going to push them away. Right. They're going to overcome it. Right? So it's not what you say or how you say it. If what you're saying and how you say it is consistent with the Bible, then it doesn't matter. Right? If they're true believers, they will overcome it. Right? They will overcome it. But I, now, again, I say this because many times people think, well, if we could just package the message in the right way, 
then everyone will believe it. But that's not the case at all. It's not an issue of packaging. It's not an issue of of presentation. The issue is truth. That's all that matters. Give people the truth. And if they are false sheep, stillborn children, then they're going to walk away. And it doesn't matter how you say it. Right? This is as it was with Jesus and John the Baptist. John the Baptist did not eat or drink, and they said he has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, right? a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It doesn't matter how you package it. If people don't want it, the truth, they'll find a way to resist and to reject it. So here, Jesus, he tightens the screws on people. He pushes back against them to see, do they really mean these things? So he's going to the other side of the sea and a scribe comes and says, and a scribe, we might say, oh, this is the kind of disciple we need here. If we could get scribes with us, then many people, they're influential. They have a platform. People listen to them. They respect them. Then we'll have credibility and more people will want to come to our church. More people will want to be a part of our following. If we could get a scribe, if we could get a professor, if we could get someone who has a high standing in the community, those are the kinds of people we want. Isn't this the way people generally think in the churches? But is that the way Jesus thinks? He doesn't care if he's a scribe or not. He doesn't care who the person is, whether he's a scribe or a tax collector. It doesn't matter. He expects the same from all men, from all men. He says, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds very good, doesn't it? Didn't we read that a couple weeks ago? Many say, Lord, 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 did we not uh, cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do many mighty deeds in your name? Did we not make bold professions in your name? Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, is that a good thing to say? Yes, if you mean it. If you mean it, and if it's coming from a sincere heart, that's a great thing to say. Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. But if it's not sincere, then it's a lie. It's a lie, and you're being a pretentious pretender, and you need to be exposed. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Right? Foxes, even animals, you know, animals that are not rational creatures, like a fox, like a bird, right? These are just animals of instinct. They have a more stable, comfortable life than Jesus had. They have, a fox has a hole to live in. A bird has a nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. His life wasn't a life of ease and comfort and luxury. He wasn't living like that. His life was very difficult. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and one from whom men hide their faces. So in terms of the reception he received from men, he was rejected by men. But also in terms of the comforts that he enjoyed in life, he didn't enjoy those things. He wasn't staying in these types of places. Now, of course, people would have him into his home and he would stay here and there and do those things. But he didn't have his own home. Right? He didn't have his own uh, house and all of the nice things of life, which also should be a rebuke against us for discontentment. Because all of us, in terms of our material possessions, we all have more possessions than Jesus Christ ever did. But are we better than him? Do we deserve more than he did? No, of course not. 
So if we have food and clothing, with this we will be content. And if God gives us more, then that's good and fine. We should be grateful and thank God for those things. But we shouldn't complain and grumble against God because we have a meager lifestyle. If we are able to eat and we have a nice place to live, a nice home, right? Then that's better than what Jesus had. So what do we have to gripe about? And when he died, what were the possessions he had? The clothes on his back. That's all he had. The clothes on his back is all he had. He didn't have a big retirement. He didn't have lots of land. He didn't have lots of, he didn't have any of those things in terms of his humanity and his possessions. He had a very meager life. So he's challenging this man. Do you know what kind of life that I live? Do you know what it's going to be like to follow me wherever I go? It's not going to be an easy life. It's not going to be a comfortable life the way that you're thinking. Because many times these teachers, like a scribe, they stay in very posh places. People want to lavish upon them. They want to take them to fine restaurants. They stay in nice places. This is the way it typically works. But Jesus wants him to know that this is not the case with him. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Verse 25. says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him and say, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. So here, you have to count the cost. You have to consider what it means to be a follower of Christ. And what does Jesus require of us? Everything. Everything. We have to love Christ more than everything. More than any other person. More than any other thing in this life. Even more than our own life. We have to count the cost. And that's what he's saying. Right? If you begin to build a tower and you don't first sit and calculate whether you have enough money to complete it, then everyone's going to make fun of you. Right? You have to consider how much is it going to cost and do I have the money to build it before you start it? And if you're a king going to war, you have to consider, am I able to overcome this other king and his army? Though I have a smaller military, am I able to fight and overcome him? Well, if you're not able to, then you better ask for terms of peace before you go and get slaughtered on the battlefield and make the most of it. And so it is with Christ. We have to consider what is Jesus calling us to. He's calling us to give up everything. We have to take up our cross daily and follow him. And there's no relationship on this earth that can be more important to us than Christ. There's nothing on this earth that can be more valuable to us than Christ. We have to give up everything 
to follow him. That's what Jesus is saying to this man, to the scribe. I will follow you wherever you go. Do you understand what you're saying? Do you know what you're committing to? Is what Jesus is asking him. Verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him. Notice that. Another of the disciples said to him. So these aren't strangers walking here and there. These are people calling themselves disciples, claiming to be disciples. He said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Here, the issue is not whether or not we should ever bury our dead father or that we should never go to a funeral as a Christian. Of course, Jesus does not mean that. And of course, he doesn't mean that there isn't a place understood rightly for a Christian to care for their aging parents or to bury their dead father or their dead mother. Of course we should do those things. It's expected, right? To not do that is to violate the fourth commandment where we are to honor our father and our mother and scripture cannot contradict scripture. But here what we're dealing with is a lame excuse. This man is lying. He's using this lame excuse to justify his lack of zeal and eagerness to follow Christ. He's giving the, uh, he's being a pretentious person. He's giving the idea, right, to everyone that he's serious minded, that he's a real follower of Christ. But then I would follow you wherever you go, but I've got to go back and bury my dead father. I have to go tend to this other business. And then after I do those things, then I'll be able to follow you. But what always happens with these kinds of people? There's always an excuse. There's always an excuse that they bring forward to justify their lack of zeal and their lack of eagerness to follow Christ. So he's not being a truthful and he's not being an honest man, but he's using something that is legitimate in its proper context to justify his own sin. Because who can deny someone to go back and bury their dead father? You can't deny that to someone. Right? Otherwise, you look like the real jerk. This is the way people do. They pin you in a corner to where you're always the loser. You always are the loser, and they always look like the saint. This is the way that they do it, but they don't mean it that way. They're lying. He's lying to them, and what does Jesus do to him? He calls him on it. Right? He calls him on it there on the spot and says, No, no, go let the dead bury their own dead. Let the spiritually dead bury their physical dead. Let them deal with that. But you, you come and follow me and you go and make disciples. You go preach the the gospel of Christ. He's challenging this man because he knows that he is not being honest. He's not being forthright and truthful. And so Jesus is exposing him in this way. Luke chapter nine. In Luke chapter nine, you have a, uh, the same account, but with another Uh, excuse that people use to justify this kind of behavior. Luke 9, 57 through 62 says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. 
again here. The issue is not whether or not we have a home, whether or not we want to bury our parents, whether or not we want to first go say goodbye to those who are at home, right? Those things understood and practiced correctly are not necessarily sins. But when these types of things get in the way of following Christ, then they become sinful. Right. According to what we read in Luke 14, we have to hate our father and mother and our brothers and sisters and our children, and yes, even our own life. If my wife causes me not to follow Christ, then who do I have to choose? I got to follow Christ. If my son is tempting me to not follow Christ, who do I have to choose? I've got to follow Christ, even if it means losing that relationship. I have to follow Christ. And here, this is what they're doing. They're using these lame excuses to cover the truth. These are half-hearted disciples, but they want to give the impression that they're serious-minded and that they mean business, but they use the excuse to cover the reality. And Jesus exposes them on it and says, no, no, I'm not going to allow you to get away with this. Right. Right. They're, they want people to think they're Lot, when in reality they're Lot's wife. And Lot's wife, what did she do? She looked back. She looked back. She wanted to go back. Remember Lot's wife. She wanted to go back to Sodom and Gomorrah because she loved this present world more than she loved Christ. They want everyone to think they're a righteous Lot when in reality they are just like Lot's wife. Okay, now one other passage, 1 Kings chapter 19. This will show that these things rightly practice, not as excuses, not in a pretentious way, but in a sincere way, are not necessarily evil and wrong. 1 Kings 19, verse 19. This is when Elisha was called by Elijah to come and follow him. And Elisha asked for permission to go back and say goodbye to his parents. And Elijah grants that to him and allows him to do so. But Elisha isn't using it as an excuse because he has full intention of, a fo of following Elijah. He just wants to say goodbye to his family before he leaves. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to say goodbye to your family and giving them a proper goodbye, a proper uh, farewell before you go on your journey. First Kings 19, 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with a 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he, was, and he uh, with the 12. And Elijah passed over him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please, let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. So there, Elisha asked permission to go back and kiss his father and mother. Right? There's nothing wrong with a son having affection for his father and mother and wanting to, he's lived with them his whole life. He's been there with them to say goodbye to them, to tell them what he's doing so that they're not worried, wondering, did he die out in the field? Did a, a wild beast come and devour him? Right, what happened to my son? To go back, explain what's going on, give them a proper farewell, 
right? Do something for the inhabitants of the town and then go and follow Elijah. And that's what he did, right? But he wasn't using it as an excuse. He was sincere in what he was doing. And so he was permitted to do so. And so it would be with us as well. There's nothing wrong with uh, marrying our parents, uh, greeting, saying farewell to our parents, uh, taking care of our aging parents, whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with that if it's done rightly and not used as an excuse to commit sins against God. Okay, verse 23. It says, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Here, Jesus gets in the boat with his disciples, and they're going to the other side of the sea. And while they're traveling, there's this great storm that arose on the sea, this being the Sea of Galilee, which was notorious for these kinds of storms that would be very violent and would rise up, and them being in not a huge boat, but in one of these fishing vessels, likely, out there in the middle of this sea, it would be very precarious, a very dangerous situation for them to be in. And here it's so bad that the waves are covering the boat, right? The waves are crashing and coming up over the boat. And yet during all of this, Jesus was himself asleep, right? Jesus was asleep because Jesus, his life was, he was constantly needing, people needed his attention so that he often was deprived of sleep. He wasn't able to get the proper rest because somebody always wanted to talk to him, wanted him to do something for them, wanted him to come to their home. There was, he was constantly uh, people wanting his attention. And so he uses these, this opportunity to sleep, right? To get rest that he needs. And during this storm, he is there asleep while this is all taking place. The disciples come to him and woke him and said, Lord, save us. We are perishing, right? Do you not see what's going on, right? Here we are about to perish. We're about to die and you're asleep. Can you save us from this storm, right? What is taking place? And then notice what Jesus says to them. Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Now, is this fear legitimate rational fear or irrational illegitimate fear right in the sense of was this a true dangerous situation well of course it is it is a dangerous situation in terms of what's happening outwardly they're in the middle of a very bad storm and there is the real possibility at least outwardly as it appears that they could all perish and die so this is a difficult situation. This isn't something that's made up. It's not happening in their mind. It's not irrational in that way. It is a legitimate danger, a legitimate threat, one that would cause many people to be very fearful. And yet, what does Jesus expect of them? He says, why are you afraid? Why are you being so fearful? And where is your faith? You men of little faith. He doesn't wake up and immediately address the storm. The first thing he addresses is who? Them. He rebukes them because of their sin, because they are being anxious and being fearful, even though 
they're in a very dangerous and a very difficult situation. Now, I say this because many times our anxieties come irrationally. There's no basis for it, right? There's no basis or reason for us to be terrified of this or that, that this is going to happen or that's going to happen. People have fears of all sorts of things, and then they're irrational about it, and then they use that to justify their sin. Here, they have at least a legitimate reason to be afraid, but Jesus doesn't want them to be afraid. He rebukes them for their fear and tells them that it's their lack of faith. It's not coming from faith, and if it's not proceeding from faith, then where is it coming from? It's coming from the flesh. It's coming from sin, according to Romans 14, 23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So again, even when there are legitimate issues in our life, whether it be some disease, right? If someone gets cancer, right? That's a horrible thing. We don't want that to happen to anyone, but it might happen to us. And if it happens to us, even if it's really bad, are we justified in being afraid and being anxious and not trusting God? No, we're never justified in committing that sin. If they're not justified in being afraid when their boat's about to sink, then how can we be justified in being afraid over anything either? if we are disciples of Christ. Do we not believe that God is in control of all things? Do we believe that God doesn't know what's going on in our life? That, that he's not able to help us? That he's not able to save his people? Do we not believe that even if we do perish, even if they perish out in the middle of the sea, that to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord? So what is there to fear, right? If we belong to the Lord. And here, who are they on the boat with? with Jesus Christ. You think the father is going to let his son send him to earth to accomplish this great mission and God is asleep at the will and Jesus is gonna to drown to death out in the middle of the sea. It's not going to happen. So is it even rational for them to be afraid? No, they're not thinking correctly, but this is what happens. Whenever these things happen, they consume our thoughts, they consume our mind, we get all worked up over these things and then we begin to behave like the disciples. Lord, where are you? Save us, Lord. We are perishing in this fearful way. Now, there's nothing wrong with them coming in a calm, collected way and saying, Lord, save us, if we're doing it correctly, if we're praying in the proper way. But their, their plead to Christ is coming out of their anxiety, out of their anxiety, and that's not good, and it's not right for them to behave in this way. So that's why Jesus first rebukes them and tells them, you're men of little faith. Wouldn't that offend us? Wouldn't that offend many people if we said that to them? If they're being anxious, ranting and raving about this or that, about the government, about uh, what's going on in the world, uh, the, an asteroid's about to hit the earth, you know, global warming, the, uh, everything's melting in New York City, California, they're all gonna go underwater. Actually, that'd be great. Well, I wouldn't, we wouldn't have any reason to be anxious about that. No, but, you know, people, they think about these things and they get all worked up over these types of things because they're not using faith. It's not coming from faith. And those things are irrational. Many of the things that we get worked up over are completely irrational. There's no legitimate reason for us to be anxious. And then even when there is something that is difficult, there's no reason for us to be anxious. If we believe in the God of heaven, if we believe in his powerful 
mighty arm. And God can do all things. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So be anxious for nothing. For nothing. We cannot be anxious about anything in this present life. And if we are, we're committing a sin against God. And we need to repent of it and not sin against God. So don't be anxious for anything in this present life, right? When we're anxious, we are showing that we do not trust God, that we believe we love ourselves more than God loves us, and that we believe we know how to care for ourselves better than God knows how to care for us. This is not true. It's not true. So don't be anxious for anything. And which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single span or a measure to his life? No one can. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Second Timothy 1, verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, or some translations will say a spirit of fear. Right? Timidity is the result of irrational fear of man. Right? When we fear God, we won't be timid in front of men. But when we fear men, then we will be timid in front of men. But God hasn't given us this spirit of timidity. So if God hasn't given it to us, then where does it come from? It comes from the flesh, right? And aren't we supposed to crucify the flesh along with its desires? So Jesus then rebukes them. Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he rebukes the wind and the sea, and it became perfectly calm, right? So here we do see that he knows our weaknesses, right? He he knows that we are flesh. He knows our weaknesses. And even when their request is coming out of fear, he still helps them in their time of need, right? He helps them. Then notice they were amazed. And they said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Here, a further confirmation for their faith of who Christ is. Even the winds and sea obey him, right? What kind of a man is this? Well, he's more than a man. That's the key, right? He's not a mere man. He is more than a man. He is both God and man. And that is why the wind and the sea obey him. And no one else can do this. Only right. Jesus Christ. And this is the one who holds us in his hands. The wind and sea obey him. Right? What person in the world today, what person has this power? Nobody. Right? What kingdom has this power? What machine created by men can do this? Nothing. There's nothing. No one can control the wind and the sea. No one can control the weather, can they? No, All they, they think they can predict it, though that is spurious at best. But even when they do predict it here or there, all they can do is tell you to get in a hole in the ground, right? Go hide. But there's nothing they can do to stop it. There's nothing they can do, but he can. He can stop it with a simple word, and it's done, and it's over. So this is what we need to think about. This is why when we go to Scripture, we go to the Word of God, it overcomes our fears and our anxieties, right? Through reading of Scripture, because we're reminded of the power of God 
and that God holds us in his hands and that God loves us and that if God is for us, then who can be against us? No one, right? So then instead of being afraid, we'll trust in him and we'll be bold and courageous, right? As bold and courageous <coughs> as a lion. Okay, verse 28. When he came to the other side, into the country of uh, Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have, uh, have you come here to torment us before the time? So here they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, into this uh, Gadarenes area, and there are these two men coming out of the tombs. Right? So they're living there in the tombs, demon-possessed men, so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. So these men are violent, they are a nuisance, they are a threat to society, they're a threat to other people. No one can even come into this area because these two demon-possessed men and how violent they are. Now the corresponding uh, part of this in Mark chapter 5 talks about one demoniac, but here we see that there were two of them. And the one there describes him that they would try to chain him, and he was so strong and violent that he would even break the chains apart, and there was nothing that anyone could do to subdue him. And he was cutting himself with rocks, crying out night and day. He's a wild man, right? These are wild, crazy, demon-possessed, violent men, violent to themselves, violent to other people. They are a complete, utter nuisance on the earth, okay? And they have demons within them, which can still happen today. Yep. But this is not, demons are not myth, it's not fiction, it's not fantasy. This happened, it happened then, and it can still, and it still does happen today. When people live certain ways, they open themselves up to demonic possession. Yep. And it is more and more common and prevalent. Right, as we become more pagan in our culture, more godless, right, and even one of the fastest growing religions, so-called religions in America, is Satan worship. Satan worship, paganism, occultism, witches, right, this type of stuff, these are very ominous, dark religions that should be outlawed from the country and they should expel all these people, right? right. We could send them over to uh, Ukraine. They could go over there and help fight the war, right? Get them out of here. We don't want them. Don't want them. We're sending them to Afghanistan. Okay, that'd be a great place for them. Or just execute them according to what the Bible teaches. Okay, so this still happens today. So don't let people say, oh, no, uh, demon possession. You know, it was, they just didn't understand what was going on. No, people today don't understand what's going on. Right. If what they're saying contradicts the Bible, they don't know what they're talking about. These kinds of people still exist today. Notice here, they cry out, say, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? <laughs> now notice this. These demons know that them and Jesus are not on the same team. That they are at war. They are at enmity. They are at odds with one another. Accordingly, this is what James says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? Therefore, whoever makes himself a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Right. This is why, right? Because the world is under the power of the devil. Right. And the devil and his demons and those under his power are at enmity and war against God. And the demons know this, right? What do we have to do with each other? We have nothing in common. There's nothing. 
that we have to do with one another that's in har uh, harmony or in agreement. And notice as well, how do they address him? The son of God. They say, you son of God. Is that a good confession of Christ? Is that a true confession of Christ? This is better than the scribes and Pharisees. They wouldn't call him the son of God. But these demons call Jesus the son of God. They know exactly who he is. And they address him in the proper way. Also notice, they also believe in the day of judgment, don't they? Oh yeah. And they believe in the fires of hell. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know ultimately they're going to be tormented. Ultimately, their eternal destiny, what awaits them, is torment in the fires of hell. But that that is coming at a certain time. And that time isn't here yet. They know that the day of judgment is still in the future. And yet here they're encountering Christ. And that's why they're asking him, have you come here to torment us before the time, before the day of judgment, while we're still free to roam the earth, cause mischief, wreak havoc upon people and do this type of things. So why are you here? What do we have to do with each other? Are you coming to torment us even now before the time, before the day of judgment? Also, if you'll turn over to Mark chapter 1, you'll see another one of these. Mark chapter 1 and verse 23. Notice this. Mark chapter 1, 23 and 24. It says, just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Notice that. Where, where are they at? The synagogue. In the synagogue. Right? Which would be the equivalent of being in the church. Yep. I think I might have ran into a couple of these people in the churches uh, through the years, right? With an unclean spirit. Okay, so a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, he cries out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Notice that. The Holy One of God. This demon knows the identity of Christ. He knows that he is the Son of God. And here he even calls him the Holy One of God. Isn't that better than what most so-called Christians believe of Christ? Yep. They've got a better confession and understanding of the person of Christ in his work and what he's going to do than most so-called Christians, most people in so-called churches, right? Listen, actually don't do it, but if you want to, listen to some of this garbage of the worship music that's being put out today by Hillsong, this type of stuff. Do they speak of Christ? Do they speak of God in these terms with such reverence, with such awe, with such fear in terms of the holiness of God? They don't do those things. So these demons have better faith in terms of understanding of who God is than what you find in many churches today, even among many who profess to be Christians. And this is what it says in James chapter 2. James chapter 2, I'm pointing this out because many people will say, well, they believe in Jesus. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Everyone believes that Jesus is the Son of God, right? Everyone says that, 
But is that enough? Is, Is simply knowing some actual factual information about Jesus Christ and about God, is that faith good enough to save you? James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Yes, you believe that God is one. Is that true? Yes, it is true. God is one. Well, the demons believe that and they shudder at the thought of God and of his judgment that is coming upon. Isn't that what the demons are doing here in Mark 1 and also in Matthew chapter 8? They're shuddering in the presence of Christ. Have you come to torment us before the time? What do we have to do with one another? They're terrified of him because they know the power that he possesses over them. But are these demons going to go to heaven one day? Of course not. Of course they're not going to go to heaven. That's the point James is making in James chapter 2. Yeah, if you believe God is one, okay, that's good and great. But demons believe that and demons aren't going to go to heaven. You have to have more than that. You have to have true faith, which is more than just some right information, some right factual information about Christ. You have to truly believe these things. And if you truly believe it, according to James chapter 2, what will it produce? Good works. Faith without works, he says, is dead. So here, these demons, they know who Jesus is. And they even make a good confession concerning him. And they know about the day of judgment. Verse 30. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Here it tells us that there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. That uh, there was this was all taking place there in this vicinity where there was a large herd of swine. Now, according to Marx, it was thousands of them, thousands of pigs and thousands of demons. When Jesus asked the demon his name, he says that he is legion, right? For there are many of us. There are many demons possessing these men, and there were many uh, swine there feeding at a distance. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. The demons know by this point that Jesus has come there to cast them out, that he is going to deliver these men from the power of these demons. So they're asking him, if you're going to do this, then at least let us go into this herd of swine. Permit us to do this. Now notice that. Do the demons have any power over Christ? No. Do they make demands of him? No. Are they entitled to Christ? No, not like the people you see today who are entitled in the way that they approach God. The demons aren't entitled. They know they have no power over Christ and he can do whatever he wants with them. If he wants to destroy them in an instant, he can do so. They're having to ask Jesus permission to do what they want to do. They can't do it without his bidding. So they know who's in charge. They know who is in control. And this should be a comfort to us. Because there are many people, are there not, even many Christians, who when you hear them talk about Satan, it's as if Satan is outwitting, outsmarting, overpowering God at every turn. But is that the case at all? No, no way. It's never the case. 
Satan has no power over God. He has no power over Christ. The demons have no power over Christ. They can't do anything. And isn't that what the apostle tells us in 1 John 4, 4? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Right? He has no authority over Christ. And his demons have no authority over Christ. They do his bidding. Satan does the will of God. Not willingly. Right, so much for free will, right? Not willingly, unwillingly, unwittingly, God makes him accomplish his will. Satan, as it comes from him, he means it for evil. But God takes his evil and malice and uses it for good to bring about his purposes. So Satan is not roaming around, doing whatever he wants outside of the will and control of God. God has him on a chain and he does whatever God pleases. This is the way it is. And this is how it is with our adversary, the devil. Yes, he is a great adversary. He has more power than we do, but he doesn't have more power than God. So we should trust in God, that God will deliver us from all of the wiles of the devil. Now, they want to go into this herd of swine, and they ask permission to do so. And then in verse 32, Jesus permits it. He says, go. He allows them to do so. They go into the swine. And the whole herd rushed down into the sea and perished there in the waters. Now, this portion has been an enigma for many people over the years, wondering why does Jesus permit the demons to go into the swine so that they can then kill them, right? They rush into, and that's what happens. They all die right there. So why does this happen? Why do the demons want to go into the swine? And then why does Jesus allow the demons to go into the swine? Well, these are, we know, evil spirits, right? They are evil spirits, and Satan is a murderer from the beginning. And the evil spirits love death, carnage, misery, chaos. Isn't this what they love? They love these types of things. They love to destroy. They want to destroy everything. If they are no longer permitted to destroy the bodies of these men, then at least let us go into these other creatures and then we can destroy them. Right? So this is what is at their heart. To kill, to destroy, to cause chaos and misery. Also from the demons, they know as well that if the swine are killed, the loss of goods may be something that will turn the people against Jesus so that they won't listen to him, so that they won't accept him and welcome him into their town. So they know those things as well. They're very malicious. They're very devious. They know how people work. And if there is this loss of goods that is on the table, then people are going to overlook the miracle that has taken place because they just lost all their money. And all they care about is money, right? This is the way that people are. So these may be the reasons then why the, swan, the demons want to go into the swine, right? Just for the sheer uh, pleasure in their mind of killing things, and then also to use it as an impediment for the people to have an audience with Christ. Right. Then we have to ask, why does Jesus permit it? Why does Jesus permit it? Well, first, as a display of his power. Right, a display of his power so that it is evident how possessed these people were and how powerful Christ is. Right, The destruction of the swine is an evidence of how many demons were in these people, right, in these men, and the power of Christ to deliver them from these things. And then also, 
Jesus, he tests people as well, does he not? And he is also testing the people of the town. Will they overcome this hurdle? Will they overcome this obstacle of the loss of their pigs? Is that going to be a hindrance to them believing in Christ? So he tests people as well. Hasn't he been doing that in this whole chapter? Putting tests, putting roadblocks up in, in front of people? Right, a person who really wants salvation, who understands his sin, who understands the day of judgment, who understands the fires of hell, is the loss of his pig going to keep him from coming to Christ? Absolutely not, if a person understands those things. But a person who all they care about is his present world, they don't care. They don't care that Jesus just delivered this, these de uh, demon-possessed men. All they can think about are their pigs and the money that they have lost. So, and can Jesus, this, has Jesus done wrong to the people of the town by permitting the demons to go into their pigs and kill all of the pigs? No, no because whose pigs are they? They're not pigs. Psalm 50. <laughs> they are Jesus's pigs and they are on loan to the people of the town. In terms of stewardship, but if Jesus wants to use the pigs for his own purposes and his own glory, he can do whatever he wants. And no one can say, this isn't right. This isn't fair. You owe me a couple thousand bucks because I lost all my pigs, right? No, he can do whatever he pleases. Psalm 50, Psalm 50, verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. Right. Everything belongs to God. Everything. In terms of our relationship to God, we do not possess anything. Right. He possesses it all. Yeah. Your house belongs to God. Your car belongs to God. Your children belong to God. Your possessions belong to God. Your retirement account belongs to God. All of it is God's, and he gives it to you in a stewardship for your time on earth to use for your present life. But if God wants to take that away and give it to someone else yep. or use it for some other purpose, he can do whatever he wants, and he doesn't do anyone any wrong. So Jesus did not do these people any wrong by allowing the demons to go in there and for the pigs to be killed. And certainly it didn't happen uh, that he was unaware of what was going to happen. Of course he knows what's going to happen because he knows all things. Then verse 33. The herdsman ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. So the herdsmen who saw everything that went down, they went and told everything to the people of the town, right? Because the pigs would have belonged to the people of the town. And the herdsmen are the ones that are over there overseeing and watching this large herd of swine for the people of the town. They tell them everything, including what happened to the demoniacs right. and how they had been delivered. And then they themselves knew from their own experience what kind of men that they were. They knew that they were violent men. And according to Mark 5, when they came there, they see the demoniac sitting there in his right mind, clothed, no longer naked, not running around, not cutting himself, clothed and in his right mind. So they have a testimony of these things, and yet what do they do? They want Jesus to leave. They implored him, begged him to leave their region because they didn't want 
anything to do with him, which is not good, which is not good. However, according to Mark 5, who did Jesus leave there with him? He left a demoniac who wanted to go with Jesus. Right? He's the opposite of the superficial disciples earlier on. The ones that said, I'll follow you wherever you go. He really meant it. He, he begged him to let him go with him. He wanted to follow him. But Jesus said, no, you stay here and go tell your family, your friends, everything that God has done for you. Right. And then he went through all the region, through the 10 cities of that region, the Decapolis, and he told them all that Christ had done for him. So he stayed there and it was a testimony of the power of Christ and the salvation of Christ. Okay, well, we'll stop there for tonight and pick up in chapter 9 next week.